following teaching is brought to you by Calvary Bible Church in Burbank, California. We trust that this recording will be a benefit to you and will be a challenge to your Christian faith and walk. For more information about Calvary Bible Church, see our website at calvarybiblechurch.org or call us at 818-556-4840. Well, this morning I'd like to begin by reading uh, the text from Zechariah chapter 5. So if you please stand in honor of God's word, we'll read uh, these next two visions that Zechariah was given in his ministry to the people to encourage them to work in the temple, work on it. Beginning in chapter 5, verse 1, we read these words from Zechariah where he says, Then I lifted up my eyes again and looked, and behold, there was a flying scroll. And he said to me, What do you see? And I answered, I see a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits and its width 10 cubits. Verse 3, then he said to me, this is the curse that is going forth over the face of the whole land. Surely everyone who steals will be purged away according to the writing on one side, and everyone who swears will be purged away according to the writing on the other side. I will make it go forth, declares the Lord of hosts, and it will enter the house of the thief and the house of the one who swears falsely by my name, and it will spend the night within that house and consume it with its timber and stones. Then the angel who was speaking with me, went out and said to me, Lift up now your eyes and see what is going forth. I said, What is it? And he said, This is the ephah going forth. Again, he said, This is their appearance in all the land. And behold, a lead cover was lifted up, and this is a woman sitting inside the ephah. Then he said, This is wickedness. And he threw her down into the middle of the ephah and cast the lead weight on its opening. Then I lifted up my eyes and looked, and there were two women coming out with the wind in their wings, and they had wings like the wings of a stork, and they lifted up the ephah between the earth and the heavens. I said to the angel who was speaking with me, where are they taking the ephah? Then he said to me to build a temple for her in the land of Shinar, and when it is prepared, she will be set there on her own pedestal. Thank you. You may be seated. A couple more interesting visions. Actually, they're tightly connected have a similar theme and focus. And as I was reading these visions this week, I came to my mind in just how fascinated uh, I have always been with skywriting. You know, you see the airplane up in the sky and the exhaust and it's printing out or, or how, what would you say that blowing out some message. And I remember as a kid, I just stand there and I would stop whatever I was doing. I would just stare, right? One of just not only the skill of the pilot, but I wanted to see what the message was. In fact, I still do that today, which isn't a good thing when I'm driving, but I mean, it's so cool, especially today now you've seen that they actually have planes in unison go together and make the letters by dashes. So it's kind of neat just as it's almost scrolling across the sky like a like a computer screen, a digitized message. And often those messages are a variety of things. But what's the most common message that we typically see up in the sky? Right. Marry me. Right. Do you notice how often, though, the name isn't put there? Right. It just says marry me. It's like. I don't know, is the guy too cheap to actually pay for the name being put as well? But in addition to marry me, you'll also see messages like, you know, happy birthday, happy anniversary, or a lot of times there are advertisements for some product or some company. But perhaps the most famous sky message that I could think of was in The Wizard of Oz. Remember when Dorothy enters Emerald City and then the, the witch appears, right? She's up in the sky and as she's riding her broom, she scrawls out this message. You remember what it said? Surrender, Dorothy. Right? Sorry. Um, (laughs) 
You know, I was meant to be an actor, right? <clears throat> no. But I didn't, I didn't realize flying brooms actually had exhaust, by the way. Did you know that? But do you know actually how that, that uh, pro- effect was done was with ink and a hypodermic needle that was spread across on the bottom of a tank of water. So for those of you that are interested in such things. But anyway, back to skywriting. If you want to have a skywritten message, you can hire somebody to do that. I looked up online for about 2000 to $10,000, depending on the message you want written. You can have one written up in the sky. But if you do that, make sure you pick a guy who knows how to spell uh, I saw one message re- recently, a marry me message. It was M-A-R-R-E-Y. So hopefully the potential fiance wasn't uh, an English major or something like that. That probably would have upset her. But, you know, messages, skywritten messages are, have an effect, they have an impact, right? They, they are ones that not only are they effective in impressing the love of your life, but, but also in, in getting a message across to a large number of people. And it's in a dramatic way, right? It gets your attention. And I... Think of skywriting because of the, the visions that are before us today. How, almost we're like an ancient Near Eastern version of skywriting. Where God showed Zechariah a message in the sky in, again, a rather dramatic way. He did so through, one, a flying scroll and also a floating basket. And the message from these two uh, forms of skywriting, if you will, were visions that God wanted his people to see And the visions and the focus and the message was God wants his people to be a holy people. That's the effect. That's the import. That's the focus in these two visions. And that so far, if we think about it, we've got to remember these visions come in the succession of there were five other visions given before. And the context of these visions, they've been focused on encouraging the people, right? These two prophets were to come alongside the people who were in the work of building the temple. And these first five messages, we see God affirming his commitment to them, encouraging them with the fact that he would again show them compassion, that he would deal with their enemies, that he would prosper them, that he would bless them, that he would dwell with them. And he affirms in those first five messages his commitment to do that. Here in these last messages, we see God affirming his commitment to their purity, to having a pure people. Zechariah begins his sixth vision here in verses 1 through 4 with the customary introduction at this point, right? Where he says, Then I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, there was a flying scroll. Yet again, it seems that that Zechariah was pondering that previous vision that he was given. And here, to get his attention, something new, a new scene goes before him. As he looks up, he sees a, a different scene than the one that he saw before. And notice he begins, as he does nearly every other vision, as that scene is first shown before him. He says, behold, it's kind of, it's this Hebrew interjection like, like, look, or it's an expression sometimes of surprise or of uh, getting attention. And then the sixth vision, he says, behold, what I see now, I see a flying scroll. And as we'll see, it was no ordinary scroll. Verse 2, our old friend, the interpreting angel comes upon the scene to reprise his role in, in giving a, a Zechariah an understanding of the meaning and the significance of these visions. He's appeared in most every other vision to explain these things to him. In verse 2, the subject here is given only as he said to me, but we learn in verse 5 in the next vision that indeed the identity of the speaker there is the interpreting angel. And he asks Zechariah in verse 2, what do you see? To which Zechariah replies, I, well, I see a flying scroll and its length is 30 or 20 cubits and its width is 10 cubits. Now, as with many other 
of his vision. Zechariah sees a, a familiar object within the vision, but there is something unique about that object or things around that object. For example, in his last vision, in Zechariah 4, he saw a lampstand, right? The golden lampstand that was uh, what you would find in the temple or in a tabernacle. But there were some other unusual features around it. He recognized the lampstand, but he didn't understand the bowl and the pipes, the trees, and all those other things. And here he sees a, a scroll. He recognized it to be a scroll, uh, scrolls in his day were made either of animal skin that was tied together or more commonly the uh, papyrus reeds that were meshed and crushed together to form the parchment. Uh, those were much cheaper and easier to make and therefore more common. So he, he recognized this to be a scroll, but what was unusual about it was, one, it was flying and no one was holding it. That's a little bit strange. And secondly, the size. This was huge. It was a massive billboard. He, he notes the size, in fact. He says it was 20 cubits by 10 cubits. And again, a cubit was a unit of measurement from the elbow to the tip of the middle finger in the ancient Near East. It was probably about 18 inches or so. And so what he sees before him is a, is a billboard of about 30 feet by 15 feet that's uh, flying overhead. And what's unusual about this particular scroll isn't the length Because uh, scrolls were normally very long. In fact, uh, 30 feet would not be uncommon. The scroll of Isaiah that was found amongst the Dead Sea Scrolls um, is uh, the full book was about 24 feet long. In fact, they found Egyptian papyrus scrolls that were even much longer. In fact, you've probably heard of the Book of the Dead. Uh, They found a scroll of that on uh, about 17 inches wide, but it was 120 plus feet long. And so the length here wasn't the surprising feature. What's the surprising feature is the width. Normally scrolls were 8 to 10 to 12 inches in width. This scroll was how wide? 15 feet. And so if you think about that, you could fit not only the whole book of Isaiah on this scroll, you could fit the entire, all the prophets on this scroll. And if you wrote on both sides, you could fit the entire Hebrew Bible upon this scroll. It was that big. What's interesting too about this scroll is those dimensions. I think Zechariah mentions them not only to indicate the size, but those particular dimensions are the exact same dimensions of the holy place in the tabernacle. You remember the construction of the tabernacle. There was the holy of holies that contained the ark. And in front of that, uh, uh, divided by a veil, there was what was called the holy place. It had the the lampstand, the utensils, the altar of incense, the bowls, and all that. that. Dimensions of that area was 20 cubits by 10 cubits. I think Zechariah is calling out these dimensions intentionally to show there's a connection here. There's a connection between the scroll and what it represents and the message intended to communicate and the very holy place of God, the place where God was worshipped. In fact, the place that was called the holy place. And so here we have this scroll. And before Zechariah is even able to ask what the significance is and what it means, remember he usually says, well, what, what is it? I don't get it. Before he is even able to do that, the angel tells him, In verse 3, notice there the angel says, This is the curse that is going forth over the land, the face of the whole land. Surely everyone who steals will be purged away according to the writing on one side, and everyone who swears will be purged away according to the writing on the other side. So here we learn this scroll has writing on it. Okay, we'd expect that. But it has writing on both sides. Not typical, not normal. There was a scroll that Ezekiel describes in Ezekiel chapter 2, um, the one, member that he had to eat, uh, and it had writing on both sides. And the writing, it says there, was had laments and woes and mourning. And I'm sure when God told Ezekiel to eat it, he was happy it wasn't the size of Zechariah's scroll. <laughs> That's a big meal. <laughs> 
But that's one scroll mentioned particularly that had a message of judgment on it. There's also another important communication given by God that had writing on both sides. We find it in Exodus 32:15, where it says there, Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand. Tablets which were written on both sides. They were written on one side and the other. That phrase there is connected to, is similar to the one used in Zechariah chapter 5. So we see the Decalogue, the, the Ten Commandments, the tablets had writing on both sides of them. By the way, do you know why there's two? Two tablets? It had the Ten Commandments. Both of them, they were copies. One was for the people. The other was for God. That was typical in a, um, when you ratified a covenant. You would have two copies of it made. Anyway, that's bonus material. We'll get back to the fact that these tablets had writing on both sides. And that writing was, I think, an implied connection here between the scroll that Zechariah saw and the Ten Commandments. And we see that that moves, that connection between them moves from the implicit to the explicit in verse 3 when we find that two of the Ten Commandments are actually those that are identified by the scroll, that the curse is going upon those, one, who are stealing, and two, those who are swearing falsely. The Eighth Commandment says you shall not steal. The Third Commandment says you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And verse 3 there, notice it says there's a curse against everyone who steals, Eighth Commandment, and everyone who swears falsely, Third Commandment. And we know that that Third Commandment is what's being identified here because in verse 4 he clarifies, swears falsely by my name. That is taking the Lord's name in vain, to make an oath or a vow in God's name or to lie essentially in his name. And so the scroll here is declaring a curse. A curse for those violating these two particular laws, that they would be purged from the land. And land here, some of your translations may have earth. It can be translated earth, uh, or it can be translated land. And I think land here is a particular focus, because, again, one, we see here that he's speaking to the people of Judah in particular. Two, the fact that the word curse here is tied to the we're the same idea in Deuteronomy 28 that was given as a part of the covenant. We see the connections here with the Ten Commandments. And remember, all of Zechariah's visions have been focused on the people of Israel. And so I think here we primarily the focus is the, the land here is the land of Israel, the people of Judah. And so this message that's being scrolled across the sky, no pun intended, this This message of a flying parchment is declaring that those in ongoing violation of the covenant will be emptied out of the land. They'll be purged, removed, cut off. Some say these two sins are mentioned here uh, by this scroll because those are two sins in particular that the people in Zechariah's day were guilty of committing consistently and frequently. And that could be the case, but I think probably a better way to understand this is those two sins are representative of the Decalogue as a whole, of the Mosaic Law as a whole. Because in these two, for example, the Eighth Commandment is embedded right in the middle of the second set of commands that are related to how we are to treat one another. And the first, the swearing falsely by the name of the Lord, that's embedded in the group of the first four commandments that are connected to a relationship with God. And so I believe these two commands that are given here expressly are to connect it with the entire law. In fact, Old Testament scholar Robert Chisholm says, these two sins may have been widespread in the post-exilic community, but they also represent the two halves of the Decalogue. These are the covenant violators in view, not just thieves and oath-breakers. So you see, you know, God wasn't just concerned about thieves and perjurers, right? 
It wasn't like he was saying, well, you know, idol worship or adultery, neglecting the Sabbath, murder, violence, uh, you know, these are okay as long as you don't steal something and as long as you don't swear falsely. Right? God's not saying that here. Obviously, he's concerned about keeping the whole covenant. In fact, James 2.10 reminds us of that where it says, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point is guilty of all of it. And notice here the severity of the curse for the lawbreakers. Look again at verse 4. God says there, I will make it, and he's referring there to the curse, I will make it go forth, and it will enter the house of the thief and the house of the one who swears falsely by my name, and it will spend the night within that house consuming timber and stone. Think about that for a minute. That's a pretty horrifying statement, actually. When God says, you know, I'm going to personally send a curse within the home, and it will stay there, it will remain there, it will abide there until it accomplishes its task fully. And curses normally weren't signs of good news, right? Normally they were not good things. And so God says here that a curse is going to find you out, to enter your home, and it'll do its work until it's done. 19th century scholar David Barone, who wrote a wonderful commentary on Zechariah, he says, We see here in this that judgment is certain, permanent, and terrible. You know, this curse as it was going forth, it wasn't just going to be like some guy that walks up to their door and, you know, nails a little sign on the door saying, Covenant violator, thief, perjurer. Well, the curse was going to be more significant and terrible than that. Its mission, its aim, its goal was destruction, was ruination. For it will stay among them, it says, until their house is entirely consumed and brought to an end, destroyed. And this kind of a picture would make sense and be clear to those in Zechariah's day. For this was actually a common form of uh, judgment upon lawbreakers in Persia. Uh, Persian kings would typically, if you were bad enough, they would declare a curse upon your house. And what would happen is your house would be completely decimated, torn apart. They would rip timbers out of it and impale the people within that home on the timbers. And then they would make that place a public restroom. That's the picture that they'd be reminded of here. In fact, you remember in Ezra 6, Darius... When he made that decree that the people of the Jews would be allowed to rebuild their temple, he says, if anyone tries to stop this, if anyone seeks to thwart this decree, this will happen to you. And he mentions this very judgment, that their house would be ruined and that it would be made into a public restroom. And so here we see this curse being declared here. It's, it's no minor consequence. It's not a casual response by God to the sinner. It's a complete destruction. And I think here he's referencing not only a destruction of their physical dwelling, but home here also carries the idea metaphorically, I think, of their life, their family, their very existence. It would all be brought down, all be destroyed. So the question here then would be, well, okay, what's the message then for this vision, for those of this vision for those in Zechariah's day? What would be the significance and import to them? What would they gather from it? We have to remember first that, again, all these visions up to this point have been focused on encouragement, right? This message doesn't sound that encouraging. But for the faithful in the land, it would be, wouldn't it? As they're seeking to worship the Lord, there were still many in the land who could care less about God. Maybe they were working on the temple, but it wasn't something that they were inspired and passionate about. They were doing it because they had to. In their hearts, they were still in rebellion against God perhaps stealing and perjuring and doing other things. And so there would be an encouragement to the faithful in the land, right, that God would deal with those in sin. 
But there's also a warning here. There's also a warning in this vision and in the next. Again, it's an encouragement to the faithful, but it's a warning to those in rebellion that God will deal with your sin for those who sin against him. And the scary part of this is there's nowhere to hide, not even in your own homes. For this this vision pictures a scroll, kind of like a bird of prey, a falcon overhead that's hovering and looking for something to consume. And, and it's continuing to look with its keen eyesight. And those who think they're safe, you know, the fish under the water who thinks nothing's going to get at them. You know, if fish think. I don't, I don't know if they think or not. But, right, he thinks he's protected. Or the rodents who are in the bushes seeking to get away from predators. But just like the scroll, the, 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 the falcon, the scroll here swoops down. When it sees its prey, it sinks its talons in, talons into unsuspecting prey, and it's over. Just as Proverbs 5.21 says, The ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he watches all his paths. Indeed, nothing escapes God's notice. You realize, right, that God's eyesight's a little better than a falcon's. He can see a lot more. He can even see into the human heart. And his decree of of judgment here is a certain decree. That would be the impact of seeing this large scroll in the sky that's being declaring this curse upon those who violate their covenant with God that that God will cause his word to come to pass. Just like in Isaiah 55.10 where it says there, For as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. His word, as it's declared, is for certain. But yet so many live as if what God has said doesn't apply to them. That, that his judgment of sin, that's just some fanciful threat. That's not really going to happen. There's no real consequences Sin's not that big a deal. God's not going to really do anything serious about my actions. And folks, I'm not just talking about those outside the church. This vision was not given to those outside the community of Judah. It was given to God's people. This message is given to them. There's a strong warning here to pretenders and the self-deceived within God's community, inside the church. God wants a pure church, beloved. Jesus wants a pure bride. In fact, remember in Ephesians 5, it says that he gave himself up for the church. And why? So that she would be spotless and blameless without wrinkles, so that she would be holy, so that she would be pure, so that she would be cleansed. Judgment does indeed begin with the house of God. Right? Didn't our Lord himself talk about that in Matthew 18? When he communicated that if there are any within his church that are in ongoing sin against him and and people have come to that person and and admonished them and encouraged them and exhorted them and pointed out their sin and yet it continues to go on despite all those appeals, didn't Jesus himself say, treat that person as a Gentile and a tax gatherer? That's a purging. That's a removal. It's serious. Why? Because Christ wants his bride to be pure. When the church in Corinth didn't deal with an unrepentant man who was in open immorality then the church, Paul said, put him out. In fact, he said there, hand him over to Satan. 
Titus 3.10 says of the one who stirs up division, particularly over doctrine, he says to reject that factious man. That means to not associate with that person. 2 Thessalonians 3.14 says of those who reject the truth and they don't submit to Christ's word, he says they're not to associate with that person. Or Romans 16.17 says, turn away from any who cause dissension and hinder the truth from being taught. And beloved, all of those passages are passages directed to the church. To us, just as Zechariah's message was directed to God's people. Later in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul gave the reason for that. He said that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. And he said there, too, that he wasn't saying, don't associate with all immoral people, immoral people in the world, because if you did that, who would bring the gospel to them? How could they know the truth? But he clarifies it, and he says in verse 11 of 1 Corinthians 5, Actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother. If he's an immoral person, or covetous, or idolater, or reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler, again, that's ongoing, characterized by sin. He says, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from yourselves. Christ wants a pure church. He wants a holy bride. My question to you is, do you share that same passion? Do you have that same desire? How persistent and how vigilant are you to go to a brother or sister who's in sin? Yes, be gracious, be humble, be gentle, as Galatians 6.1 tells us. But you need to go. Don't just let it go. Don't look the other way. Again, Paul said, a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. And if you are, if you are that person who is in ongoing sin, if you are that person who is living a double life, if you are putting on a performance here for us, know that God's scroll is always hovering. That was the point there. He said, it's going forth. It's flying around. The message to the people in that day and the message we need to remember today is he's always watching and you can't hide. You can't avoid it. You will be exposed just like the falcon can see through the surface of the water. I remember I was in Yellowstone one time. We we're just out looking at this river and all of a sudden this eagle swooped out of the sky and slammed into the water and has grabbed a fish right out. It happened like that. It's very impressive. I actually got a picture. It's kind of blurry, but... But that's a great picture of what the scroll does here. It sees, it swoops, and it's over. So the message to you, if that is you, is turn to Christ in repentance now, before the scroll hits, before judgment comes. Put your trust in Christ. Come before Him in faith. So you don't have to stand before a throne in judgment. Psalm 2 said there earlier, you know, Jesus is not only a Savior, He's a judge. He's the one that all the earth will stand before and answer to. And now we have the opportunity through faith in Him because of His death on the cross, if we put our trust in Him, desire to turn from our sins, confess unto Him, He will forgive. He'll forgive stealing and theft and immorality and any sin. The only sin that won't be forgiven is the lack of faith. So put your trust in Him. But don't keep one foot in the church and the other in the world. It doesn't work that way. It's not working that way it can't work that way you can't play that game choose christ or choose the world follow jesus or don't worship him or yourself but you can't do both there's no back door to heaven 
It's not like you can make a profession that you know him and then, you know, live a, a moral life and then, you know, but still doing what you want on the side, you know, and people don't know about it. And then you'll get in the back door in heaven. There's no back door in heaven. There's no exit you can sneak through. And it's not like there's going to be a large group of people going through the pearly gate together and you can kind of slip in with them unnoticed. It doesn't happen that way. The entrance is very narrow, only enough for one to fit. And that entrance is only allowed by one person, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the only one that can gain you entrance into heaven through faith in him. Only if you confess to him, put your trust in him. If there's anything that this vision shows us, if there's anything that we should see here from, from what he is describing, it's that God will purge sinners from his people. Those who have not sought forgiveness in Christ. Do you remember Jesus told a parable of the wheat and the tares? Matthew 13. And he said the tares, you know, in the parable, you know, do we, do we cut them out now? And he says, no, leave them until harvest. And then we'll separate the wheat from the tares. The tares will be burned up. He's saying that there are tares within his church. And the judgment will be swift and powerful. So don't be a tear. Don't be a tear. God wants a pure bride. We see that a similar message in the next vision that he gives in verses 5 through 11. And there he talks about not only will God remove the sinner from the land, but in that second vision, God will remove sin itself from the land. It will be a purging not only of the transgressor, but also of the source of transgression. He will eliminate evil itself. In fact, look at verse 5. Zechariah begins this seventh vision, again lifting up his eyes and looking. And this time the the scene with the scroll is erased and there's a new scene. This time there's a a flying or a floating ephah, a basket. Uh, An ephah was a container. It normally either stored grain or it was used to measure grain. It's somewhere between 5 and 10 gallons, uh, close to the size of a U.S. bushel. And it is this ephah that is what is now floating before him. Going forth, it says. Again, it's not being carried by anyone. Before looking at the significance of the ephah, notice that phrase, going forth. We've actually seen that several times. It's the same root verb in Hebrew is used 12 different times in these last three visions. Connecting them all together, but also communicating this, this dramatic effect and action and activity that's going on. That, that this is something that is happening. It's going to happen. The angel explains the this floating ephah and what it symbolizes at the end of verse 6 where he says there, this is their appearance in all the land. The word this there refers to the ephah. And the pronoun there must refer back to the previous vision. The the nearest antecedent to to that pronoun there, the plural pronoun, must be the the sinners mentioned in verses 3 and 4, the thieves and the perjurers. Again, representing all those who violate God's word and his law and so this ephah here represents something about the lawbreakers in the land for he says this ephah is their appearance their look what one sees when you see these people in the land now if you have an esv or an niv you may have noticed there the phrase at the end of verse six says this is their iniquity kind of a different word than appearance isn't it now the reason that that word is there because that translation is making an assumption that there was a letter that was corrupted in the copying process of the original manuscripts, and so instead of the word ayin, which is means eye or appearance, they say it's the word awon, which means iniquity or or evil, guilt, and that would seem to 
fit a little bit better with the connection to what's being said in verse 8 about what this ephah represents in regards to wickedness. But the problem is, there's very little evidence in the existing Hebrew manuscripts to support it. In fact, there's almost none. And so, I think we can best understand that that ayin, or appearance, is the word here, that it is the original word that was written. Because the ephah here represents something that they look like. And I, I went into that whole thing just because I know some of you have ESV or NIV Bibles and may have seen that word iniquity and wondered, you know, why is Tim saying appearance? Those are good translations, by the way. I'm not dissing them at all. But sometimes there are differences, and we want to make sure we understand why. And so here, the angel mentions that this is their appearance. This is what the people who are in sin look like in the land. And the question is, well, what? I don't fully understand that. What's the full import of this vision? Well, that begins to be unfolded in verse 7, where Zechariah tells us that there is something or more, to be more precise, someone inside the ephah. Apparently, too, that person was supposed to stay there. For notice in verse 7, there's a lead cover on top of the ephah. That word for cover there is a word that comes from an idea of round being round, and it came to mean a talent, a unit of measurement that weighed somewhere on the order of 75 pounds. Normally it was made of lead. It was used to measure metals, precious metals, things of that nature, particularly when you're doing business. And so here we have this ephah, we have this heavy lid of lead, lid lead, lead lid, on top of it. And Zechariah notes that when that lid, I'm going to say lid, lead lid, <laughs> that cover is removed, there's someone inside of it. He would have expected it either to be empty or to have grain in it. But instead there's a, a woman in there. He said a woman that is sitting inside of the ephah. Now some say that that because an ephah was only so big that it must have been an idol, a, a female goddess that was represented in there, and therefore the, the, the picture is idolatry. But, but the problem with that is twofold. One, the word there for woman is the word for woman, not idol. And secondly, this woman is alive. For in the next verse we see she tries to get out of the ephah, which the angel then has to deal with. And so here we probably actually have a basket that is a little bit abnormal in size, like the scroll was, so that a woman could fit within anyway her presence certainly probably confused Zechariah because again when the covers lifted up what is it he expected to see in there you know probably some grain and yet here's this lady in there but before he could ask about her the angel automatically brings clarity to what's going on when he says in the beginning of verse 8 this is wickedness it's a word that means the opposite of righteousness it's a total contrast to holiness it epitomizes guilt for wrongdoing and so We learn here this particular basket, this ephah, has a woman inside, a woman who represents wickedness. And he says again back in verse 6, remember, this is their appearance in all the land. So now we're getting an idea of what he is talking about there, that that this ephah with lady wickedness inside represents the wickedness taking place within the land. Now some have questioned, well, okay, why is it a woman here? Why did he make this representation of wickedness a woman there's a lot of elaborate theories i think the simple explanation is the one that makes the most sense is that the noun wickedness is a feminine noun in hebrew and so when you're personifying a feminine word he used a female Uh, we have the same example a positive one by the way in proverbs chapter 8 where wisdom which is also a feminine noun in hebrew is personified as a woman lady wisdom And so here we have that same picture where wickedness is personified as this woman who's inside the basket. And by the way, before anyone takes offense, remember the the bride of Christ is the bride of Christ, right? Represented as a woman. 
Another question that comes up a lot with this vision is, well, why an ephah? Why not just a, a large pot or why not a big bowl or something like that? Why in particular is an ephah noted as the, as the, the container here? Why not some other kind of container? Well, one possible reason is the ephah would be an appropriate symbol for materialism and greed because the ephah was something that was used with trade and commerce. In fact, Old Testament scholar Merrill Unger says that, you know, anyone who in Zechariah's day who would see this ephah, they would immediately think business or trade. Just like if, you know, when you turn on the station and you see the New York Stock Exchange ticker on the bottom. I mean, you think business when you see that. So there's this idea that perhaps this ephah represents that, that there was greed taking place within the land and uh, that the lead cover being actually the word for talent, which was also a, uh, a thing that was used in regards to measurement with business and commerce would reinforce that idea. And certainly, less than two generations later, Nehemiah chapter 5 describes the people who have succumbed to materialism and as a result have oppressed their brothers and taking advantage of them financially. Not long after that, Malachi's famous statement in Malachi 3 uh, that they had robbed God, that they had withheld their ties from Him out of greed. And so perhaps that particular sin is at the forefront here. Perhaps that is a particular evil that he is calling out here by using the ephah, but But I think it extends again beyond that, just like in the previous vision. It wasn't just those two commands of stealing and perjuring, but they represented a larger picture. And I think whether greed here is the intended specific symbol or not, the overarching understanding is that this ephah with the woman inside represents wickedness in the land. Evil, whether it be in the form of greed or theft or swearing falsely or idolatry or immorality or violence, false worship, oppression, all of those things. And it's at this point in the vision, in verse 8, that things take a turn. Because when that lid is taken up and lifted from the ephah, apparently the woman tries to get out. Because in verse 8, the angel says there, or it says there that the angel threw her down into the ephah and he slammed the lid shut again on top of her. That word for throw or cast is, uh, usually connotes kind of a, a violent action, a forceful action. And so I think what's being symbolized here is not only is he preventing evil from getting out and spreading, but also that this container is being prepared for transport. And especially the thing inside, the woman inside representing wickedness, is going to be sent away. In fact, that's what we see in verse 9. Lady wickedness, after she's thrown back into the basket, these two women appear with large wings and they pick up the basket, lift it into the sky to carry it off carry it far away. And some believe these women to be evil beings because storks were considered an unclean animal according to Mosaic law. But notice here they weren't called storks. In fact, they they weren't likened to them at all, only that their wings were like that of a stork. I think the idea here, you know, stork or heron was a common bird in that region. And so they had large wings. And so I think the focus here is the size of the wings being able to transport a heavy object a long distance because it turns out their journey is going to be over 500 miles. Because notice in verses 10 and 11, we learn their destination is a land, a land called Shinar. Now this location was not randomly chosen. Shinar was first mentioned back in Genesis chapter 11. There was a certain event that took place, another construction project, where the peoples of the earth had gathered together to build a tower, a building. And they wanted it to be a particularly high building. Not because they were wanting to set a record, but because they wanted to make themselves equal with God. They opposed God 
fact, Shinar was the place where the first world empire gathered in opposition against God. Remember the name of that tower? Tower of Babel. Guess what region that was located in? Babylon. Shinar is in the same region, the location as Babylon. Same Babylon that later, under King Nebuchadnezzar, in the same area, a large empire arose under him, one that completely dominated a large portion of the earth, a large region there, militarily, politically, economically, religiously. And that Babylon, that empire, that nation became the epitome of human arrogance and pride. You remember Nebuchadnezzar's declaration in Daniel 4, look at what I've built, look at the power of my might. Babylon became a representation of of a system opposed against God. Isaiah 14 speaks of the king of Babylon, and it sounds eerily like the, the declarations of arrogance and pride from Satan himself. In fact, some believe it is Satan speaking in Isaiah 14. Babylon came to represent the world system against God. It was spoken of by the prophets, Isaiah 13, Isaiah 14, Jeremiah 50, Jeremiah 51, and how Babylon will suffer consequences for her rebellion against God. But this region, this representation, this, this term Babylon didn't stop in the Old Testament. Remember, there's a certain city, a great city, a great land in Revelation chapter 17 and 18 that's described. John the Apostle sees a vision as well. And he sees in Revelation 17 this vision of a woman riding on a beast. And he says of her in Revelation 17:5, on her forehead was a name was written, a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. So we see here Babylon will rise again to prominence in the last days. They'll be under Satan's lead through his Antichrist. They'll be the great enemy of Jesus. They'll be the seat of world power. It's the empire of wickedness. And it's interesting, by the way, as you read through Revelation chapter 18, the descriptions there, the material wealth, possessions, the riches, the greed, it almost supports the idea of Zechariah's ephah representing greed since it was sent back to the same land, the same region. But in any case here, in Zechariah's vision, it gives a picture of wickedness being taken back to its home, being taken back to the center of opposition, those who are opposed to God, a place that is recognized as the seat of rebellion against God. When you say Babylon in Scripture, that is the picture that should come to mind, a place that has always been in opposition against God and His people. And even in the end, we'll see that to be the case. Verse 11 depicts the woman in the ephah being taken back to Shinar, to the region of Babylon's located, and being put on a pedestal there to be worshipped. It's quite a picture. Those in opposition against God worshipping evil, worshipping wickedness. And God says here, that wickedness will be removed from my land. It'll be put in Babylon And we don't see the end of the story. We don't see it in Zechariah here, but we know from Revelation chapter 18 and 19 that wickedness will not be worshipped forever. (laughs) For right after the destruction of Babylon is foretold in Revelation 18, we see our Savior, our Master, our Lord, riding that white horse coming down from heaven, not only to put an end to Babylon, but to put an end to all who are opposed to God. And so Zechariah's vision here looks to days yet future looks to the day when the Messiah will return and set up his kingdom and deal with those in opposition against him. It's just like the other visions that have been future-focused. 
particularly the day the Messiah returns. And so with that in mind, it brings up the question, well, what then would be the significance of these two visions, which are forward-looking, which are speaking of events in the future? What would be their significance for the people in Zechariah's day? And more to the point, what would be their significance for us today? Well, again, notice, both of these visions share one particular theme. The removal of sin from God's people and from the land. And so one thing we can take away from these visions is that God will cleanse his place one day. God will fully and finally deal with sin. We've seen that numerous times. God wants to make sure we get the message. I've got it handled. I see it. I'm going to deal with it. A full and final and complete removal. Wickedness for my people and my land. Amen? It's going to happen. But there's a second thing here. I think an even more important truth that we need to see from these visions. And in fact, it it's, involves the core attribute of God and, and, and the motivation for the actions that He takes here in these two visions. Because again, the overarching theme of these visions is God's holiness and His fierce protection of that holiness. In order to prepare His land for His arrival, Christ will remove the wicked and He will remove wickedness from His land. In Revelation 20, when Jesus comes to reign on earth in his millennial kingdom, describes here how he's, what he's going to do in removing the iniquity from the land. And then later on in Revelation chapter 20, it will be a permanent removal from his universe. Where all those who are opposed to God and the principle of sin itself will be thrown into the lake of fire. And so whether you're in Zechariah's day, hearing these visions, or whether you're reading them in the centuries to follow, or whether you are us today here seeing these visions that were given 2,500 plus years ago. When we read these visions, when we see God's commitment to holiness, when we understand what He will do in the future, we cannot help but grab this particular, this single application. 1 Peter 1.16, You shall be holy, for I am holy. These visions scream out the importance of holiness to God because God is holy. Matthew 5.48, Jesus said, Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Or in Hebrews 12.10, it says, God disciplines us for our good that we may share His holiness. You know, we talked last week about Christ's mission to make disciples. Remember, we, we discussed how that mission was... And making disciples meant more than proclaiming the gospel and bringing someone to faith in Christ. That's a part of it. But but Christ also said this. He said, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then he said, teaching them to observe or obey all that I have commanded you. Embedded in Christ's commission, his very purpose statement for the church, his mission embedded in that is Christ's passion for our holiness. To obey Him. To reflect Him. To flee from sin. Christ is passionate for a holy bride. And so the question before us as a result of these visions this morning, do you have a flat out commitment to that holiness? Again, not for your sake, not to avoid consequences, not to gain some reward, not to be seen as spiritual, but because you want to be holy because God is holy. Because you want to honor Him. 
because you want to enjoy fellowship with him, because you want to be like him, because you want to honor the intent of the death of his own son who died to make us holy. Is everything you do, everything you think about, everything you expose yourself to, do you ask yourself this question, will this please Jesus? Will this reflect his holiness? Will this be something that that honors him? Because again, holiness was so important to Jesus that he became a man. What an act of humiliation for the Son of God. He became a man and suffered at the hands of men and died and suffered separation from his father and the pain and torture of all that. He went through all of that in obedience to the Father's will so that we could be holy. Ephesians 5.25, Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. Or he says in Colossians 1.22, Christ has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to, purpose statement, present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Or in Titus 2.14, Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. You notice in each of those statements a couple things. One is Christ died to purify his church, to make us holy and blameless. The other thing it says there, each of those say to present to himself. He died to make us holy because that's what he wants for himself. A precious, holy, pure bride. We can offer Jesus something he wants because of his death. And that is to be a pure bride. He's passionate about that. His sacrifice was not just to give you access to paradise. It was to make you holy. And you know from that, we would then have free, unhindered, intimate, uh, complete fellowship with God. And indeed, holiness is the condition for that fellowship. It's the prerequisite. It is the requirement. Hebrews 12, 14 says this, Pursue the sanctification or holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Pretty powerful statement. Pursue the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. That verse, as it happens to be, is our theme verse this month. In the year spiritual disciplines, our focus this month is on sanctification. And so Hebrews twelve fourteen is the theme verse of that, the, this idea of pursuing holiness, of taking the path to Christ's likeness. And I want to ask you, how are you actively, deliberately, frequently, consistently, passionately pursuing holiness? Are you making effort? Oh, hold on there. Use the word effort, Tim. Didn't you just preach a few weeks ago, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit? Isn't it something he does? Isn't it a work he has to do? I can't do anything about it. He died to make me holy, and he's the one that has to finish the process, right? Yes. But he doesn't make lowly people who don't love or care about what he cares about holy. Lazy Christians. He doesn't work through them. There's a means in which he brings holiness within our lives, and that means comes through effort according to his word and dependent on him holy, praying fervently, begging 
fervently that God would do a work, that he would make us holy, and wanting that above anything else. Lord, I want to be part of your holy bride. Do that work in me. I'll do whatever it takes to make it so. Knowing ultimately it is by his power and grace. But we have to take action. There has to be this fervent desire. There has to be this purposefulness in battling sin. How are you cultivating a love for Jesus? A love which, by the way, will serve as the motivation and the enabling power to want to obey. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Again, beloved, I would commend to you two books that I found most helpful in this. The first is, uh, happens to be our book of the month. The Pursuit of Holiness by Jerry Bridges. Excellent books. One of the first books I think I read, Christian books, after I became a believer. So helpful. He writes so clearly. Again, I encourage you to, to get that book. And secondly, one of my all-time favorite books, I mentioned it several times, it's on my top three of any, is a book by J.C. Ryle called Holiness. In fact, you can get that one. I don't think you have to pay for it. That one, I think, is online. You can find. Get both of those books and read both of those books. Ultimately, they point us to this book, which is what we need to focus our attention on. But they're very helpful and bring clarification not only in God's holiness, but also why and how we can be holy as his children. Beloved, pursue the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Let's pray. Oh Lord, a a strong message from these visions, God. We see again clearly your passion for the holiness of your people. And that, Lord, you will not dwell with those in rebellion against you. And Lord, you have, you're so passionate about it. You've given your son that we could be forgiven and cleansed and transformed by the power of your spirit to vessels that made holy. Lord, thank you for this encouragement that Christ dying for us, for his bride to make us holy, that just encourages me to know that that you will make it happen. But Father, may you work in us that we would have the, the same passion, that we would desire more than anything else to be a pure bride for your son, to be holy and blameless, beyond reproach as he's desired. And Lord, show us areas in our lives where we are not submitting to your will. And Lord, I pray if there are any here who, Father, are playing the game and have their foot in the church and in the world, that you would get their attention. Show them, God, that you don't mess around, that, that Lord, uh, hypocrites are something you were very strongly opposed to, just as we saw with Christ, how he dealt with the Pharisees. Lord, make Calvary Bible Church or a holy bride part of your holy bride around the earth. We look forward to the day you return and deal with sin. And thank you, Lord, for the forgiveness you offer. You grant us completely and fully. We can be guilt-free before you because of your Son. In his name we pray. Amen.